G'day and welcome to Property Australia's favourite obsession. My name's Jeremy Cowan and this is a podcast where together we get to chat and learn about my favourite topic, property. See, property surrounds us every minute of every day. We buy it, we sell it, and we feel it every day as we live in apartments, flats, townhouses, on quarter acre blocks, and even courtyard homes. And today's episode is another great example of the impact the property has on our lives. See, my guest today is going to provide us with some amazing real-life examples of how our five drivers of property prices manifest in the real world. So you will clearly see them at work today, infrastructure, technology, population, government and credit, all of them working tirelessly, driving prices higher and higher. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Jason Oster, part-time pilot and full-time property valuer, specialising in agricultural land. Jace has the pleasure of travelling this wide, vast country of ours, seeing crops like beans and lucent, mangoes and potatoes, and looking at cattle, goats, and everything in between. Agriculture is such an important part of our economy, and it facilitates our standard of living. And Jason will show us that there's so much that we can learn from a property point of view. So today, to discuss how our five drivers impact agricultural property is Jason Oster from Knight Frank Valuations. Jace, welcome to Property, Australia's Favourite Obsession. Thanks, Jezza. Now, tell me, you're a valuer who specialises in agricultural lands. How is that different from residential or uh, commercial valuations? Uh, so, Jez, we specialise in agricultural uh, land. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, I, I grew up on a farm, so I have an understanding of um, farming practices, I understand the soil types, you know, the terroir, the climate uh, and production systems that go on it. So it's all, it's, it's quite... Uh, different to, um, you know, a, a house on a block, but uh, I guess at the end of the day, it's still a property market, so there's still transactions, um, market analysis, uh, you know, but yeah, it's just the asset itself is, is quite specialised and quite diversified. So who is it that actually commissions your work? Uh, so there's a number of different um, requirements, uh, different reasons why we'd be out. So um, uh to, to a large extent, um, it's it's the banks wanting a v- review of their their client's position, um, which you know on a commercial loan might be say every three years. Um, we have a lot of corporates that have annual reporting requirements for financial purposes that get us in annually to update their asset values, um, and then you know there's a range of other uh, reasons such as you know family law. Um, litigation, uh, taxation, so a lot of capital gains tax purposes, superannuation funds, getting valuations done for property that sits in the fund every, you know, two or three years or whatever. So Australia's a big place. We grow a lot of different stuff. Um, You know, sheep, cattle, grapes, wheat, barley, nuts, oranges, bananas, cotton, saddlewood, sugar, pigs. What's your favourite? Grapes by far. Grapes by far. <laughs> maybe, maybe bias because I like the end product. <laughs> yeah. So, so do they differ much with the way in which you approach evaluation? Um, look, at the end of the day, uh, we still undertake uh, a primary approach of market comparison. So, that doesn't matter if it's a, a house, you know, in in North Adelaide, or or a farm, uh, you know, at Millicent in the southeast you're looking for market comparison. So where you can, you compare apples with apples. And so if it's a house in North Adelaide, it's got three bedrooms and it's on a thousand square metre block, you go to the you go and analyse that market. And so you're looking for um, market sales that have a similar type, size and features. Um, with, with a farm, at the end of the day, our best approach is market approach and where we can find directly comparable sales, you know, that, that's our best market evidence. So I'm going to ask you to comment a bit on our five drivers as we see them and how they relate to agricultural uh, lands. Sure. Um, but I just first wanted to ask you, like, what's the main driver of price? And I'm specifically thinking about things like, you know, acreage and infrastructure, um, you know, the fertility of soil, um, you know, water, the environment, you know, carbon emissions, that sort of stuff. Like, what, you know, what did, what, what really. Um, you know, what's the really the poignant point that you're, you're after when you're, when you're doing evaluation? Yeah. Um, 
there's a number, and I guess whether they're drivers or influencers, um, you know, you can you can debate that. Um, pr- productivity is certainly a major driver, um, but there's a long-held theory, particularly in agriculture, that price and productivity aren't aligned. Now they may not be from a justification point of view. But at the end of the day, a, 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 you know, a hectare of soil that's more productive than another hectare of soil will always command a higher price. Whether that market price relates to its value of productivity, maybe there's a question mark over that. I mean, I think there's other drivers that, that uh, will create value or price, but certainly productivity uh, it w- would have to be the main driver um, around it. And when you're talking productivity there, you're really talking um, fertility of soil, aren't you? Oh, no, no. There's a couple of different aspects to look at productivity. So um, reliability uh, will always command a higher price than, than unreliable, but maybe more productive or equally as productive areas. So um, we see that in uh, the York Peninsula. Everyone sort of looks to look the York Peninsula for, um, you know, a benchmark of, of values. But it's it's just good reliable land, you know. Mm. They don't they don't certainly um, have the highest yields in the state, but they have reliable yields. You know, they just you just never miss out, and that's that's where people pay the money. Yeah, interesting. So we talk about our five drivers all the time. Uh, you know, infrastructure, technology, population, uh, government granted licenses, and of course credits. Um, I just want to grab your thoughts on these. So, you know, how does the infrastructure you know, influence the valuation of agricultural land. Yeah, so it, it does to the extent that uh, without it, s- some operations can't exist. So irrigation, for example, without that irrigation infrastructure, pipes, pumps, bores, it, it wouldn't exist. So that, that land use wouldn't be able to um, exist without it. So from that point of view, uh, it's very important. But you know, land itself has an in, inherent productivity and fertility d- just by its pure existence. It's millions of years of, you know, um, rock and soil breaking down to be what it is today. And, you know, we're the lucky custodians of it. So um, I- infrastructure in a sense of, you know, we may look at a commercial market or a residential market having roads and, um, you know, bin collection and parks and water, um, you know, the, the, there's that that is important, but I think to a lesser extent in some of our regional areas, whether whether there's you know um, a road going past, you know there, there's certainly if you can get a B double in to load stock and the property down the road can't, then you know there would be a difference, but it's not to the same extent because you've got this this you know land that just has this inherent ability we've got rainfall that comes from the sky mm. it'll rain regardless of what road you've got going past the front gate it's an amazing thing about land isn't it that every piece of land has its own unique um, set of characteristics and its own locational advantage yeah um, and Absolutely. what you're really saying is the locational advantage of the land um, is more important than the infrastructure itself yeah and and more important because it drives that uh, inherent productivity we can't you know, we can't shift the dial much when we buy a block and, you know, it is what it is. It's going to get the rainfall it gets and it's got the soil it's, it's had for a million years. You're not going to shift it. You're not going to move the dial much. You can certainly increase productivity, you know, increase organic matter with farming practices now, precision agriculture and no-till retaining organic matter in the soil. We've certainly moved the dial a, a little way, Um but, you know, you're not going to shift it greatly. I spoke with um, Neil Dolstrom uh, a number of episodes back um, and he, he, he works for John Deere and we were talking about the, um, the technology that sits on a tractor these days. Um, you want to talk about technology as it relates to farms because they are really quite technologically advanced beasts now, aren't they? Oh, uh, incredibly so. I, I was with a uh, client yesterday, and um, we were driving around, and to the, to, you know, to, to the uneducated observer, the lush green, loosened paddocks that are irrigated, and beautiful big wheat crops that were being harvested. Um, but behind the scenes, they use 
an enormous amount of technology. They've got variable speed, uh, sorry, variable rate seeders now. So they put um, seed and fertiliser out at a different rate depending on what they've taken off the soil the year before. They're using drone technology with infrared uh, to, mon to monitor and manage moisture levels in their irrigation paddocks. Um, this, this drone had six blades on it, all these cameras that attached to it. It was a huge thing, stood about half a metre tall, a 25 grand bit of kit. Um, they've now managed to download these um, uh, real-time live maps into their John Deere header. So when they're, when they're reaping their crops, it's feeding data into the system and then that goes out of the header and into the tractor when they seed their crop and then they apply different rates of seed and fertiliser based on that and it's, the database grows every year. Every time you reap a crop, every time you put something in, their database grows. And then come late spring, when they're going in for a urea top-up, they'll put a heap on the flats where there's good productivity and then yep. based on their drone uh, footage, that for, that, for that, that live footage for them from that day they'll then apply a lesser amount to the hills where the crop's lighter and it ha can't use it. So it's, urea is a very much a use it today or lose it sort of product um, and will help you fix nitrogen into your, into your grain, protein in your grain. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing what they can do now. It's certainly a long way from where it used to be a bloke with a couple of, you know, a couple of horses, um, yeah. you know, putting a, a stick through the dirt really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I left agricultural, uh, the, the ag scene, w working on the land tw 20 years ago, and we, GPS steering technology was just coming in, but it was very mm. expensive. You know, a, a setup in a tractor was around 100 grand or more to set it up. And, you know, you, you couldn't quite justify, uh, well, you know, I was working for a guy that was pretty big scale, and we couldn't justify um, the, the efficiency gains back then to do it. Now the cost has come back so much. I mean, these guys are seeding. They've got 25 centimetre row spacings and they're moving over five centimetres each year. So they're not going into the same row they were last year. Oh, so the machine's wow. moving five centimetres from where it was last year and running an exact line. It's, it's quite incredible. So that's helping them with breaking down nematodes and in the soil and, and not having a soil crust, compactions less. It's, it's quite incredible what they can do. Wow, we! It's a long way from the uh, from the John Deere plow. Absolutely. It, um, so, what about stuff like you know water conservation and that sort of stuff? Yeah, that's that's. Um, I, th I think that's where we've got some huge gains to come. So, carbon sequestration in the soil um, effectively means more organic matter. Right, we're locking organic matter into the soil, which makes a healthier soil. Organic matter for a hundred years has really been. Um, you know, farmers know it helps you lock moisture in your soil, particularly those sandy soils, the mallee soils, where you, you know, your, your moisture just will run straight mm. through them. You get lots of leaching. If you can hold organic matter in there, you're going to hold moisture in that soil. So I think there's some massive gains for farmers in the future uh, in soil carbon sequestration, and which means higher organic matter, higher water retention and better crops. Mm. It comes back to that natural... Um uh, that natural location too, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. So you get, you know, I think we're going to be able to move the dial with, with that. What about things like fertilisers and stuff? Yeah, wow, fourteen hundred dollars a ton at the moment. <laughs> um, you're using it sparingly. Yeah, yeah. So it's costing farmers a great deal to put in crops, which is really interesting. So fourteen hundred bucks a ton for fertiliser, twenty five grand for a drone. Yeah. Like it's, you know that. Stops yeah. to make you think, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I think we'll uh, we'll see um, in the next couple of years. I mean, that you know, the the farmer I was with um, yesterday, you know, got a phone call from from his lad uh, just saying, well, we can we can get guaranteed supply March next year uh, for fertilizer at fourteen hundred bucks a ton, whatever amount they were talking about. Um, and he goes, oh. He started by saying, gee, that's pretty dear. And then he's gone, okay, guaranteed supply March. Yep, let's get it. You know, so I think mm. we'll see more green crops turned in. So we'll, people will run a vetch crop or, a, you know, a, a, um, 
another green crop maybe um, and turn it in, you know, and, and sort of try and fix some protein and some yacht. So what do you mean, sorry, let's go back here. What's, so what do you mean by green crop? So um, what they'll do is they'll grow a vetch crop, which is a nitrogen, so it's a legume. It'll fix nitrogen into the soil. Um, so what legumes do, um, it'll, it'll grow a small seed pod with a high-protein grain and instead of harvesting it or cutting it for hay or, or grazing it, they'll turn it in so they could they could plough it in or they'll just leave it in the paddock to lie and then incorporate later and it'll it'll then that nitrogen will stay in the paddock. So yeah, right. as opposed to applying a fertiliser. Yeah, okay. And so so from a farmer's point of view that's economic to do that rather than actually reseed with something else. Yeah. Well, well you have got twofold. So you've got the nitrogen fixation that plants done naturally. Um, so the nodules on the root actually fix nitrogen, so it's more like more nitrogen in the soil than when you started the crop. Uh, and secondly, if you're turning that crop back in, you got more organic matter, the, mm. you know, the carbon space. Yep. Uh, you, so you, your soil's going to be healthier as a result. Yeah, it's an amazing, uh, you know, different thought process now, isn't it? Yeah. To yeah. Uh, you know what it has been. Um, what about stuff like communication on a farm? Yeah, yep, um, that's huge. So I do a lot of work in the partial industry up north. You know, you do a water run up there, it's a full day drive in the ute. And when we're talking, it's a 300k round trip on some properties to, to check, you know, maybe you check 20 different individual water points to make sure the tank's full, the trough's not leaking, there's not a pipe burst somewhere. So all of those paddocks you've gone to have got a source of water there. You know, if you if you have a pipe break at the start of the system, and you've got ten tanks relying on that one pipe, you know you fill one to mm. the next to the next. If that you know you have a problem at the start, you got a big problem on your hands. If you don't get to that for four days, let's say you do two runs a week, you know you might have three or four days before you get back around to it. Uh, you got a big problem on your hands. So um, they're using a lot more satellite te telemetry now to be able to tell them what tank levels are. So if you've got a critical point in the system, um, they'll use a, a farm bot system or a satellite system to tell them the level of the tank and the flow of the pipe, and then they can log in with their iPhone anywhere in the world. You know, they might be in Adelaide watching the cricket next month, and they can log in and see there's no problems in their in their water system and it's all sweet. Or you know, alternatively, there is a problem and you better start... Get home before stumps. Better get home <laughs> before, before the last over or ring the workman and tell him to get out and have a look. But So that's a huge... So it saves labour. It's saving wear and tear on your vehicles because, you, you know, you're not having to necessarily drive that water run that day. Yeah. If you can check your technology and you know that there's a couple of critical and key parts of the system that are all healthy and okay then you go, well, I'll do it next week. You might cut it back to one run a week. You, you'll never replace it completely because you'll get out there and a bird's died in the trough and the sheep won't drink it because the water's gone foul. Yeah. You, 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 that, you know, you can't tell that. But, uh, yeah, so technology. Not yet, anyway. Away. Yeah. Well, the, so some of them have cameras on them, so you can actually – they'll feed back a still shot and you can see there's – stock standing around the trough yeah right and, and maybe you can zoom in enough to see it but you can certainly see there's water in the trough but there's stock standing there not drinking it there's mm. a problem and you can go and do it so yeah it's pretty cool with some of that technology so what happens to a farmer that doesn't embrace that sort of technology oh. there must be a lot of haves and have nots out there in the farming industry yeah so you go back to the original point about the land you know presenting this you know it's it's taken a million years to create it and it'll go for another million years and you've got someone there you know if they're not a very responsible custodian they might have that piece of land for uh, maybe 10 years 20 30 years maybe have a couple of couple of generations you know 30 years in a million it's a pretty small window right mm. so i think land in that sense is very forgiving on those on those farmers So what about the role of the workers and uh, the education and, and, and changes in, you know, requirements for, for those working on the farm now? Yeah. Uh, look, for, for farm businesses are no different to your business or my business. Pe people are the key. Yes, we've got machines, but you need someone to drive them. Yes, they're auto-steer, but you still need someone to turn around at the end of the, at the, end of the run. 
point it back in the right direction and let the machine do its job again. So, um, you know, they still need to be unloaded, they still need to be maintained, they still need to be greased. Um, yes, there's technology to tell you have more alerts and say, well, this one's healthy and this one's not, so I need to attend to it. Well, water system's okay, but at the end of the day, you still need someone to go and fix the polypipe or put a new tyre on or whatever. So um, people are going to continue to be key. I think we'll become more efficient and we'll be able to do more with less, but they are still key. And, uh, you know, whether it's your business or mine or a farmer, you know, people are really important to that whole thing. It's interesting you started that sentence with, um, you know, the farming business. It, um, you're exactly right. It's the the day of the, you know, the, the, the sole farmer as such is really gone, isn't it? It's now a commercial enterprise. Absolutely, yeah. And, and that's how farmers are thinking but need to think, you know, it is a business. You know, they have to understand their benchmarks. They have to understand their business. They have to understand their profitability. They have to understand the drivers of their business. And if they don't... You know, they have Mother Nature, it'll keep raining and they'll keep growing crops, but the good farmers know all of those inputs. Mm. We speak a lot about, um, uh, you know, government-granted licences and certainly with farming, you know, you've got the mother of them all, which is the ownership of the land itself, but there's a lot of other licences that go along with a farm, aren't there? Um, And I'm thinking specifically... You know, say water licenses, and you know, how has that impacted the agricultural industry? Yeah, look, um, I, I'd say that we're not uh, terribly regulated in in the farming uh, industry in in Australia. Um, you know, I think the that we have no subsidies. You know, the, the there's yeah. we're not we're not as regulated as perhaps other parts of the world are. Um, but yes, uh, wherever the government have um, a licence, it creates a supply and demand cycle and yep. and hence the, the market operates perhaps differently than if, if they weren't there. Um, but yeah, uh, the water market, um, I think the government have done a great job. They've, what, we've, what we say is they've unbundled the water rights, so they've allowed them to be freely traded separate to the land. Yep. Um, that's been a huge thing. There's now people who have created water markets and, mm. and matured water markets off the back of that. So they have an identifiable parcel which can be traded between you and I. Yep. And so that's created some certainty in the market, certainly created some price rising because as soon as you put a, a cap on something, then supply and demand kicks in. Absolutely. And, and there is no more supply. That is infinite. And then so demand will bring prices up. Um, so... Yes, there is. Uh, we don't. Um, there's a little bit of licensed crop. That's not certainly so much government uh, run. It's more uh, private run government. Um, sorry, private run uh, plant breeders' rights licensing. So um, I can think of a few examples in new varieties of orange trees, almond trees, um, some some seed crops. Um, Lucent seed. There's a number of private. You know what they say. Um, plant breeders' rights uh, over some loosened varieties. So they're new varieties that they've, they've developed. That that firm, that company's invested um, money and time and effort into developing a new hybrid seed that yep. grows better, is more drought resistant, takes less water, develops over a shorter season, whatever the whatever the attributes are. Yeah, yeah. Um, potentially, you know, more profitable and then they'll control the market to some extent. So they... Um, that they may say, well, you can only sell it back to us and then we'll we'll market it from there. Or they may want a clip for it. You know, they may want a licence fee. Yeah, yeah. For it. Um, but that also goes a lot further, doesn't it? And I'm thinking there specifically, um, you know, Kensington or Calypso, you know, mangoes or Sav Blanc Riesling, Wagyu versus Hereford. I mean, those sort of, um, you know, breeding programs, um, uh, you know, they're... they're they're worth serious money, aren't they? And there's serious protection of, um, you know, the rights. Yeah, um, but but I look at that. That that's private industry doing something, yeah, well with with a niche market and putting a brand against it. So it's not so much licensing. So you know, the, and again, they they create a finite supply by branding something that's mm. that you cannot get anywhere else, right? Um, Angus. The Angus industry, beef industry, have done a remarkable job 
you know, if you look at all the Angus beef burgers available on the market, they've really mm. put Angus beef in every in front of everybody's mind. You know, beef's beef. You know, but they've done a great job of saying, well, if you eat Angus beef, it'll be better. Yeah, yeah. And it's in all the you know all the market chains, Angus beef burgers, Angus steak. You know, and look, they look. You know, black cattle look visually pleasing. They are, mm. very, you know, you get a very homogenous line of cattle. You know. Um, Herefords, whilst they're nice and they've got beautiful white faces and red coats, no two Herefords are the same. So you get a pen of them and they all look slightly different. You know, there's red and white for sure, but they don't yeah, ever yeah. look that even. You get a pen of black cattle and they just look absolutely identical when it, you know, it, it goes, you know, we buy with our eyes, don't we, don't they say? Yeah, well, that's the way you know, it is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Exactly right. Um. Credits, of course, you know, a major underlying driver of, of you know, prices and you know, driver of assets. Um, you know, how much does the amount of debt that a farmer holds impact, um, you know, their profitability and and their ability to farm? Um, good questions. Um, I, you know, would would refer to a conversation we're having earlier about credit driving demand and and um, at the moment I think credit's reasonably tight in the ag space um, but interest rates are very low so um, that I think in itself is creating some stability around the market we've seen commodity prices like we've never seen before cattle mm. prices sheep prices wool is yeah. pretty good uh, wheat grain prices are fantastic um, you know, uh, oranges, almonds have come off, but they're you know they're still quite profitable. Um, so so that coupled with low interest rates and I think easing credit markets is creating some prices in ag we've not seen before. Yeah, breaking records. You know, almost every month and in almost all locations. Uh, so yeah, if if credit eases and makes demand stronger it's uh it's it'd be interesting to see where where the market goes with that we you know we're used to hearing those stories about you know the poor farmer being kicked off the farm through to yeah. um you know foreclosure etc for the the ruthless banks etc yeah. you know how how common is that story yeah we haven't seen that for a long time jez um that that happened in the 80s when interest rates were you know 18 19 20 20 plus percent yeah you know, you look at interest rates now, I and mean, farmers could get something interest-free for five to ten years at three or four percent, maybe. So, the interest component is not a noose around their neck anymore. Mm. Um, uh, you know, again, my, my client we were with yesterday, they've specifically set up a productivity fund um, with some credit from the bank, and they religiously uh, pay that off in four years. So, if they do a productivity project. They'll take a four-year view and say, right, that has to be paid off in four years. So they're not going to be laden with debt in 10 years' time because it's all getting paid off as they go. And if they can't fund it with cash flow as they go, then it doesn't get done. So it has to be a productivity gain. And they look at it and say, well, if we spend this money, we'll get a better return on our investment. That's that's the criteria. Let's go and do it, and we'll do it over four years. It'll be easy to do it over 10, mm. but they, they commit to themselves. They'll do it over four so what sort of what what sort of can you give us an example of what sort of productivity game project oh, we're talking about? Okay, so a couple of them would be um, let's say a big hay shed to store export quality hay, so absolute yep. first quality hay, um, storing it in a shed as opposed to under tarps or having to sell it at the point of getting it off the paddock at the price that you need to take to sell it on the day, so they can store it. They can sell it in winter when demand's higher and supply is lower, yeah. and they know that it's completely protected from the weather. So they put it in there as first quality; it'll come out. So that that's a good example. Um, putting a new centre pivot up on a virgin piece of land, you know, getting that land from a dry land enterprise to an irrigated enterprise, and the so gains, a centre pivot being a big sprinkler, a big irrigator. Yep, yep, big circle irrigator. So irrigating that land that wasn't before. Yeah, you know. Looking, looking the business model um, of that. Yes, there's capital to be put into it, but there's you know the gross margin and the return is there to justify that. It's really interesting the whole business side of uh, of ag now, isn't it? Yeah, 
Yeah, look, farmers are um, increasingly becoming more sophisticated. Um, you know, they're using benchmarks. There's a there's a lot more knowledge around in the business, like in a business sense, in the farming community than perhaps there ever was. Certainly, uh, more than I've seen. And let's face it, you know, I mean, the the way land prices have gone over the last ten years. You know, there's an old adage, and it's probably more true today than ever, that, you know, lots of farmers are very asset rich and cash flow mm. poor. Yeah, right? yeah. And, you know, they've got to deal with the seasonality and Mother Nature's not always their friend. And, you know, you look at what's happening in the East Coast now, they've come out of two years of drought, looking at really good crops, and now everything's flooded and they've had hail and all sorts of things gone wrong. I mean, Who'd be a farmer? Oh, goodness me. It's it's a tough gig. Um but, you know, it comes back to where you choose to be and that reliability uh, and, you know, you, you pay the money to be somewhere where it's reliable. Well, we always go after the most uh, productive land, don't we? That's where yeah. money chases. Location, location, location. Absolutely. And, like, on that location thing, like, what is the demand for rural land and where does it come from? Oh, it's incredible at the moment. Um, so you look at the drivers, so you've got... Uh, an environment where there's, um, well, firstly, they're not making any more of it. Yep. Um, secondly, we've got a, you know, historically low interest rate environment. We've, I've never seen before and I've been around for a little while. Um, we've got commodity prices that are I- incredible in some sense, uh, but certainly very good. Um, and, uh, you know, so you've got meat, uh Wool, you know, commodity prices are, are, are quite incredible. Uh, and I think business confidence is, is really good at the moment. So, you know, there's a number of drivers. And I think if you pulled one of those levers out, so let's say sheep meat yep. uh, took a dive for whatever reason, um, then you've still got a few other drivers that are going to hold it up. And a lot of enterprises are diversified in what they do. So they could take sheep meat out for a year or two and it wouldn't affect their overall operation by a significant amount. Of course, those who are weighted more towards sheep meat than anything else would feel it the worst. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a number of drivers. Um, when I was growing up, we used to trade lambs in wintertime on our Lucent farm, mm-hmm. and we used to buy them for about 18 bucks a lamb, and we'd sell them for about 40 to 45. If we made $50, and I think we did a few times, we might have topped the market, you know, we thought we were making big money. Yeah, yeah. Now, nowadays, lambs are selling for over three hundred dollars. You know, it's just we never thought that would be possible in in my time, but it's it's here. It's funny know? how um, my uh, my best mate was horrified the first time that he ever came over. Absolutely horrified because uh, our him and his um, partner come over or his wife come over and so we put the dog out the back and threw a lamb shank for the dog to eat <laughs> and he was absolutely horrified to think yeah. our dog was out the back eating Eat lamb, lamb shank. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Well, I, when I used to work on the farm, um, my, my employer and good good friends of mine, you know, he we'd um, have our own meat on the farm and he'd feed the dogs lamb shanks and he goes, oh, you get... You get these as all the rage in town, he reckons. <laughs> Good enough but, for my yeah, dog. I know. And yeah, everyone will go, God, you're feeding the best part. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. Unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. Do uh, You know, these days, do, are a lot of farmers, you know, they de-risking by, you know, diversifying the actual um, um, markets that they're exposed to? Uh, yeah. Uh, look, I mean, it's pretty hard if you're a, you know, an olive grove or, you know, yeah. you're, you're growing cotton or something. There's um, a couple of schools of thought there, I think, Jezza. What one is scale uh, is good, and I think it is in in a lot of ways. You know, um, I think you need to be at a at a scale that makes you efficient. Um, but uh, you know, th- there's big almond growers and there's big citrus growers, um, or there's big sheep farmers who are heavily invested in that. A- yeah. And I think that's a good thing, and I think that needs to be there. But yes, they are exposed to that, but. Where they are heavily invested in that, you know, they'll be across... They might diversify within their operation to have prime meat, so prime lamb sales, um, wool, and then they might diversify into some cropping. So I think there's a mix of both. Um, Corporate Australia are are interested in ag, are investing in ag heavily now. They tend to like big-scale, big-scale operations. Uh, 
but then they get diversity across funds, across portfolios. Yeah, correct. Where they might have, you know, a, a 30 hectare glass house in Victoria, but they'll have one in New South Wales and they'll have one in South Australia, but then they'll also invest in citrus and almonds and, mm. you know, yeah. other industries across a bigger scale, whereas, you know, your more traditional family farms, you know, they probably tend to more diversify within a smaller scale. Yeah, yeah, I think. So that's an interesting question uh, or interesting school of thought with regards to, you know, how correlated are the price of those markets? You know, oh, uh, you know is ag, ag, ag or is, is you know? No, um, no, no, I often, I often say uh, in my game, you know, what's the best part about the job that I do and it's the diversity. It's every every day I'm looking at something different. I might be looking at a sheep station and then a vineyard and a winery and then a olive grove or a almond grove. And then what's the worst part about my job? It's the diversity. I'm, not, yeah, I'm always yeah. looking at something new. Um, so strengths are your weaknesses. That's yeah, how it works. That's right. Uh, so I, I, I'm, there would be elements that would be correlated, but I mean you'd probably have to look at a couple of specific examples and then say, well, are they correlated? But um, sheep meat and beef. There's probably some correlation there in terms of tre consumer trends about red yeah. meat versus white meat or other products. Um, so yes, they may, but you know, sheep meat and wool, probably not highly correlated. Mm. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not sure. It, it's comes back to your consumer demand really. Yeah. And yeah. and um, you know, almonds for example. So we're governed very heavily, not governed, but influenced very heavily by what Californian almond market does. Yeah, yeah. Because we are such a small part of the global supply of almonds. And so, you know, they, they say if the US sneezes, we get a cold. If the Californian almond market is bad, and it is at the moment, then our almond market is, is yeah. bad. Our almond market would also be quite influenced by water prices, wouldn't it? I think there's far stronger um, correlation with the offshore Californian almond market than water. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But they are big users of water, so that does factor in. Is it just a pipe dream for um, you know most Australians to get started in farming now? Um, yeah. It, oh, look, I mean, uh, you know, when I first got into real estate, you know, you, you wonder then how you afford what's a pretty insignificant amount but back then. Uh, today you go, gee, I don't know how yeah, our yeah. kids are going to get into the market, but yeah. that you know you find a way. So um, yeah, look, there you do. You know you do need a big sum of money to buy into ag now, um, but you know th those who are genuinely passionate about it, you know they'll start off, um, and you know they might buy a small block or they might lease a bit of dirt and buy a few stock and then mm. build build their numbers up and then have enough money you know build equity in their in their herd or their or their flock and then buy so yeah it, it still can be done um you know and i think there's a you know there's a big role for for succession in farming to to help those the next generation yeah. out well that is a big problem isn't it in in farming is that uh, the age of the average farmer and yeah. succession planning and and i guess also the rise of the corporate yeah, look, I, I don't know. I'd be interested to look at the data. I'm not sure if that age profile's ever been any different. It feels like we've always talked about the farmers getting older. Yeah, and interesting. The younger generation uh, not being there, but somehow we keep going. And, you know, I think some of the best farmers I know are the generation coming through now, younger than me, yeah. and having a good crack, doing a great job. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's certainly a capital-intensive uh, marketplace, that's for sure. <coughs> So 2020 brought about the uh, uh, the rise of COVID. How did that affect the ag businesses and farmers in general? Uh, um, look, it's, ag's been a great space to work in for the last two years. Um, in, in a lot of ways, it, it hasn't affected them at all. Um, in fact, I think part of the increase in demand has been because food and fibre have really come to the mm. front of mind of people, yep. you know, they want to know where their food's being produced. Yep. Um, they want to. They want to know. You know, I'm talking with people now who are talking about traceability in yeah. in their product. And I was talking with a guy last week about 
um, the innovations in wool and they're now trying to put a DNA code into a fleece of wool so that yeah, wow. when you buy a garment, you know mm. that there's a fleece of wool that's come from McBride's station and that's, that's, that's been traced all the way through the chain, right through the wool mill, through to the manufacturer and then back to the consumer. And you can scan a tag and say, well, I know exactly where this jumper's come from because yeah, amazing. I've got the... So people have uh, focused on that, I think. Um, so, yeah, ag's, ag's been great for the last couple of years. There's been disruption, right? There's been border closures have stopped people being able to come into South Australia to shear sheep and work on farms and pick fruit. There's, there's yeah. no doubt yeah. about that. Um, but, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. You know, farmers... Um, I heard some... Uh, a report yesterday that uh, farm labour was down, oh, look, something like uh, 11% or something like that on, on last year. Um, but, you know, farm profits are up now. Commodity prices are good, so profits are going to be higher. So they've made do, but it's been a struggle, I think, for them. So there's been disruption, but it's been pretty good, really. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. So... You mentioned earlier about, you gave the example of a corporate having you know, a glass house you know, in Sydney and one in Melbourne, one in Adelaide, etc. Um, that rise of the commercial greenhouses and you know, hydroponically grown uh, produce, you know, how has that affected? Because you know, land prices or change land prices in that you know, those high value goods can be grown you know, in different environments now, can't they? I mean, essentially you're, yeah. you're um, controlling the environment and, and you the locational advantage of a piece of land isn't necessarily as important as the uh, the shed or the uh, the glass house that it's actually being produced in. Yeah, um, you're right. So there's they're very um, uh, they consume a lot of energy and they consume a lot of water. So where you can have an intersection of you know a big water pipe and a, and a big electricity pipe or a big gas pipe to provide the energy they need, then you've got yourself a perfect location. Now that can yeah. be at Two Worlds or it can be, you know, at um, Port Augusta, look at Sundrop Farms, you know, great, yeah. great example of an innovative um, uh, mechanism of providing a, a glasshouse, effectively a glasshouse uh, infrastructure. They're tomatoes, yeah, aren't they? Yep, in yeah. a completely remote location. Now, you know, wh where that... That blew my mind when I first saw that. Like yeah, in great In the middle concept, of nowhere, really. Great concept. Um, where that? Do you want to just describe that? So, what's the land like? That that's you want to describe the location of that? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, a lot of if a lot of the tomatoes are traditionally grown uh, just you know on the northern Adelaide plains, um, you know within an hour of Adelaide, the, the rainfall here would be say uh, 500 millimeters per annum, um, and they'd grow the uh, you know reasonably temperate climate Mediterranean. You'd you'd say probably. Um, the Sundrop Farms have developed a uh, 10 hectare glasshouse at Port Augusta. So we're talking 300 odd kilometres north of Adelaide. Uh, rainfall would be maybe 200 mil per annum, so significantly less. Yeah. And they're using solar to desalinate, to create energy, to desalinate water and use that back through the hydroponic system of the glasshouse and provide the heating as required. So in, in winter time, they still need artificial heating. Yeah. Um, so it was run as a pilot project initially. It then scaled up. Um, I, look, I, I'm not sure what the uh, original development cost was, and I suspect it's probably um, too high to be commercially viable. But it's a great, you know, it's a great concept using you know solar and desal to run, you know, a, a fresh vegetable crop in the middle of nowhere, effectively. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so to answer your question around what's it done in land prices, the, the, the land value component of one of these uh, facilities is really quite insignificant compared to the capital investment of actually building the structure. So And the it, technology as well. And the technology. So in that regard, it doesn't really matter where they are. They can afford to buy in, you know reasonably inner locations because the land component's not a you know not, not a, a huge driver, not a huge it? part of it yeah yeah we've spoken a lot about the natural productive value of of dirt yep we've spoken about 
the impact that technology and infrastructure and, and also government, you know, the licensing can have, credit, etc. What happens, or what's the impact um, when you've got a mining or an exploration lease on a property? How does that affect the valuation? Yeah, look, unfortunately for the landowner, uh, it pr- all the rights pretty much still sit with the, with the government. So um, as a landowner, someone can come in, um, put a, put a uh, extractive minerals licence claim over your land um, a- and you don't get any royalties. So the landowner loses out. Um, what we've seen is uh, more broadly an impact around that, so not necessarily an impact on the, on the location where the extraction happens, but m- more broadly around you know, the surrounding land. So the mining companies... Um, typically come in and try and create a buffer. So they'll come in and start buying up land. Now there's some, you know, some absolutely, uh, you know, steadfast traditional farmers who just don't want mining at all in that location. They think yep. it's prime, pristine farming country and absolutely there's a, they have uh, a right and, um, you know, I, I, I think there's, that's a reasonable argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so they, they just disagree with that just on the out, from the outset. Um, but they will typically come in and try and work with the landowners to, to create a buffer. So, you know, BHP are one of the biggest cattle station owners in Australia because they've bought lots of buffer land around yeah, right. Olympic Dam and around their mining leases yeah. where they are. Uh, and they will typically lease them back to the landowner and let them run them as a cattle operation exclude some areas that they don't want, you know, stock on or people in yeah, yeah. Uh, as a really sensitive uh, buffer to them. But then beyond that, you know, they can still run as a, as a cattle operation. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because, I mean, it would be difficult, as I understand, especially sheep are a bit of a creature of habit, aren't they? That they'll take the, the same route to a water trough, et cetera. So. Yeah, and you've got to remember these, you know, these mining enterprises, whilst they might seem big flying over them, they, you know, in the scale of a sheep station, yeah. they really take up a very, very small footprint. Yeah. Uh, now, not to say they're not an eyesore or not, not to say, you know... Um, yeah, they don't. They don't have any other impacts, um, but the footprint is really quite minimal. So, um, you know, now is it right or wrong that the mining companies buy up the neighbours and create a buffer? Hey, well, you know, that's not for me to, to argue. But um, yeah, th- so there there is that they do have an impact on the landowners for sure, and particularly in smaller communities. You know, the um, you you would all have heard um, and read and seen the. Um, objections to the to the landing, uh, the mining proposal on the York Peninsula. You know, yeah, beautiful, yeah. productive, um, coastal farming land yeah. that that's got a mining lease approved over it. You know, and yeah. I can understand why um, there's been such a strong uh, community um, uh, outcry about it. Because you know, it's a pristine area. We love going over there. We love holidaying there. I don't think any of us want to see. Great big mine there, but you know, who, who are we to yeah, that's it. judge whether they should or shouldn't? One, it's one, you know, who are we to judge one land use is more important than another? Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, yeah, what uh, society values or what it does. But unfortunately, the poor farmer does tend to lose out when it comes to extractive minerals. Because the reality is, the farmer owns the top meter. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that that's well, yeah, I'm. Um, not sure exactly the the length the or depth, depth but but yeah they they own the land but the, not the minerals under which it sits. I'm pretty sure that's different to Tokyo. I'm pretty sure it's Tokyo actually where the land owner actually owns to the core I think of the okay. earth, and which is why there's a number of um, I'm pretty sure it's Tokyo. I haven't gone I haven't gone too left field here that there's a number of uh, subways that run in Tokyo that don't run in a straight line because they can't. Oh, they right, can't take yeah. A, a okay. Path. Yeah, yeah. Well, certainly in the UK, in London, you can buy the subterranean uh, yeah. title. Yeah. And there's been huge issues because there's no room to go up, up or out in the centre of London. And so people have been excavating below and it's causing subsidence. I mean, it's a huge issue for them. So. It's a, you're right, though. It's yeah. a big business. Some yeah. of those places are Airspace. bigger underneath than they are on top. Airspace and subterranean, yeah. That's actually another one I, I'm. 
definitely going to get someone from Night Frank back to uh, to discuss that one about uh, air rights and subterranean because it's a really really interesting discussion. Yeah. That one. Not much. Not not one we see much of in Australia because we've got so much so much dirt, dirt so much available dirt. Yeah, exactly. Why, why would you at a at a significant cost go down when you can go out or just yeah. build another? But it makes a difference when you when you are landlocked. Oh, right? absolutely, big yeah. difference. You mentioned before that. Um, you know, the best and worst of your job is the fact that, you know, nothing's the same. You, you know, different location, different farm, you know, different crops uh, or produce uh, makes life difficult. Um, what other challenges, you know, do you have to face as a valuer? You know, what's, uh, what, what, what makes your job difficult? Uh, well, so for, for me, um, in the ag space, uh, yesterday was a great example. I left home at... Uh, quarters of six in the morning, drove uh, two and a half, three hours to, to m- m- my first job. Um, probably spent, I don't know, uh, six or seven hours driving around the farm with them, inspecting um, all of the houses and the sheds and all the irrigation infrastructure and the pumps and you're in and out of the car and you're opening and closing gates and you've got dust and gear going everywhere and you're out in the sun and the elements and yep. and uh, ha- having a ball and then you jump in the car so I think I called home at about three quarter past three and said hey I'm just uh, just started heading home I'll be I'll be home at about six o'clock so you know it was yeah. a, a good solid 12 hour day in the in the in the seat of the car um but, you know, I love it. I love getting out. I love the things you see, uh, particularly this time of year. The change of the season is, you know, you can see where things are green and crops are getting harvested. And so, you know, whilst some people might think it's a chore and boring sitting in a car for 12 hours of the day, I, you know, I was in my element. absolutely <laughs> loved it. So, um, you know, yeah, and I, we, you know, I do a lot in the, in the pastoral areas and, you know, I'll drive to my bridge, jump in the little plane and fly to a sheep station and spend a couple of days driving around, you know, uh, a million acres of dirt and then, you know, look at more water points than you can poke a stick at and, and uh, you know, um, and fly home. But uh, at the end of the day, um, it, it's, it's really, uh, it's lovely and it's humbling to deal with country people. They are just absolute yeah. soul of the earth. Um, and you know they're just great people. They're just nice people to be around, and you know you can always learn a lot on a day out on the road. So yeah, that that really for me, you know, makes it worthwhile. Well, I was going to mention that that you do cheat, don't you? You jump in the plane and fly about a bit. Yeah, there's nothing better than uh, <laughs> having having something that's just a little bit too far away to drive. <laughs> Any excuse. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Perhaps we should do a podcast from the cockpit one day, Jess. <laughs> well, that would be really interesting, flying over and you know discussing some of the uh, the dirt that you fly over. Because you know, I guess the point that you're really making is that it's a big joint, Australia. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> Absolutely, it's it, massive. It, I mean, and there's just that's the amazing thing. I mean, you would you would look at um, and assess farms that are bigger than European you know nations at times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. I mean, a lot, lot of lot of our Outback cattle stations are bigger than small countries, you know. It's crazy, isn't two, it? Two million acres uh, is not a big, big station. Uh, you know, it's it's 130 k's from east to west, and it's about 75 k's north to south. It, like there, we're talking big areas of land, but it's great. Fantastic. Good excuse to get the plane. <laughs> <laughs> And get to see it. So if you could encourage a farmer to focus on one thing to improve the value of their land, what would it be? Uh, so if you ask my father, and I respect he's a very good very good at what he what he did, he is a very good farmer. Um, he, his number one thing in agriculture was timing. So when the crop's ready to go, you gotta be there to go. Yeah. When it's ready to go in, you gotta put it in. And when it's ready to get it off you've got to be there to get it off yeah um and you know your windows now have just closed so much so you you know uh your, your window for seeding timings just everything um so I, i'd say that is still very important and a lot of 
people I speak to w would agree. Um, and then secondly, um, you have to understand your business model, right? You need to know your numbers. You need to know, like any business, what your inputs are and what your outputs are. So, you know, you put a dollar in, what are you going to get out? Yeah. You know, what's the point of putting a dollar in if you get 80 cents out? Yeah, correct. You know, so um, you need to understand your numbers. And I think farmers are getting better at that. It makes it hard, though, for a farmer when... You know, you've got a whole lot of variables that you don't actually control. You can't control the yeah, weather. Yeah, no, you can, can only rain, control prices, exchange rates. Yeah, so you can control what you can control, and the, the, there's some you can't. So you know, you can't control the weather, but you know, you can do you can do as much as in your power to mitigate bad bad weather or or unfavourable weather. You can grow crops that are more suited to your region or the yeah. seasonal conditions you're getting. You know, you can have better weed control you can there's a there's a n massive number of things you can do to to mitigate your weather and to mitigate those things um that that are in your control so yeah look at the numbers and so tell us what frustrates you most when you're driving around looking at different farms um, you must look at some and think gee if they only or they only you know did yeah. this or did that you know what what goes through your mind there? Uh, Jez, I reckon that you can tell the value of a farm when you're driving the gate. You know, if they've got junk laying everywhere and there's bundles of wire and old broken down utes and the bonnets up and the sheds are all, you know, rusty and pieces falling off, as opposed to someone you drive in, they've got a nice, neat driveway, the front lawns trimmed and mowed and they actually care about what they do yeah i reckon that says a lot whether it's a you know a house in northern adelaide or a, or a farm down south or i reckon you can tell a lot as you're driving the gate about what sort of operation you you're walking into you know and if people actually have a bit of pride in what they do you'll see it you know and and those who do are generally the ones that that are better, you know, the good farmers are those that actually, you know, they, they look after the small things, you know. Yeah. The, the, the driveway's neat, the sheds are neat, the machinery's put away when it's finished with, it's not out in the yard. Yeah. If something's got a flat battery, you go and buy a new one and put it in there, you, because when you need that machine, mm. you don't have to go and grab the battery out the other ute and then you, you know, so I reckon, yeah, th those who just focus on keeping things... Um, you know, that they, they keep the little things which look after the big things. So what's the number one resource that you'd say that you, you know, rely upon to do your own job? What do you use the most um, besides a motor vehicle? Besides a motor vehicle and an aeroplane? Um, I, look, technology for us uh, has come a long way. So, you know, there's almost, there's almost nothing you can't find out on Google nowadays you know research for us is a huge part of what we do so we're researching the market uh, all the time we're constantly so information for us is absolutely key so uh, talking to reliable sources in the marketplace to get a get an understanding so it's one thing to see a transaction on paper it, it's another thing to have a good reliable source of information about that asset once, once yeah. it's transacted, and then it's another thing altogether to actually talk to the person who sold the place, who bought the place, or who acted on behalf of one of the parties yep. in, in negotiating the transaction to actually get behind the mindset. Uh, you know, pe people are, um, you know, mostly creatures of habit, but they're also quite irrational. And, and I'm fascinated continually about how they've derived a value to come up with a purchase for, a, for yeah. an asset, you know. Yeah. And so for me, doing that research, doing that, investing time in understanding the transaction puts me in better place to better do my job when I'm trying to deal with what I think that asset would make in a hypothetical sale. And at the end of the day, that's all it is. Yeah. So... Uh, understanding those market levers the best we can, uh, you know, and how often do you, you know, um, go, go to a, the sale of a property and, you know, the the people there are just almost ill-informed about what the value of it is. They just 
go to the auction and they figure if they bid one more time than the next guy, they'll, they'll buy it. Does that, is that market value? Mm, mm. You know? Mm. Well, it is in the definition because it's a willing buyer and a willing seller. seller. Yeah. But were they informed about their decision? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe not. So then you've got to look at that and say, well, did, did they have all the information they needed available to them? And would, would an informed person make that same decision? And, you know, your conclusion might be they would have, but I think uh, you need to understand that. So information for us is absolutely critical to what we do. It's interesting you come back to that psychology thing again. I mean, we're big on the, the investment psychology and, yeah. you know, how psychology drives decision-making and the impact it has. It, yeah. it just is crucial, isn't it? And yeah. You would think almost in something like ag, which... Um, you know, when you're buying and selling commodities all the time um, and inputs as well, that, you know, people could be a little bit more rational about it. But, yeah. you know, not necessarily. Well, you know, if you if you look at a share market or if you're selling widgets, you know, you, there's a there's multiple transactions. So you get a pattern, you, know, you understand, well, if that widget's worth a dollar, well, that one's about the same, so it's worth a dollar, and that one's twice as big, so it's probably worth $2.00. You know, in, in property in general, but particularly in ag, we don't have heaps of transactions. Like, we're not getting, yeah. you know, we don't have yeah. hundreds of data inputs. We've maybe got one or two or, you know, best case scenario, might have four or five good data inputs for a region. Mm. So yeah. we've got to draw on our experience from the data set that we've got, which in some cases is non-existent. In some cases is only a couple of data points. We're drawing our knowledge of other areas that are similar and then we've got to overlay that with, well, are those buyers still motivated by the same triggers and levers as what the buyers in this market are or are they, do they act differently? Would, would they be looking... So one of the complexities of the market at the moment is, yes, you've got neighbours that want to buy agricultural property and they're generally your go-to, but then we've got people from outside the region are also looking... Maybe they're getting yep. priced out of their region, so they're looking for better value for money. So they come in. So do they see the market the same as what the locals see the market? Mm. And often they don't. Often they see it as better value because where they come from is at a higher price point. Yeah. Yep. Um, so it's yeah, it's really interesting dynamic that we don't have a lot of data points to go by. Um, so you've really got to yeah get behind the transaction and say, well, why? What was the motivation behind that one? Yeah, really interesting. Can you tell us, you know, what's the most common reason for a farmer hanging up his gumboots? Um, so at the moment, uh, just uh, sort of retiring farmers are, are, are a big part of the market. Um, and then probably second to that is th those are looking to move on to the next big thing. So they might be selling up... Um, you know, an asset or a group of assets, an aggregation of assets to then do something bigger and better somewhere else or, or scale up, yeah. Do typically they have that, um, those new assets in place before they sell the old assets or how does that sort of come about? Because um, given, as you said, that the transactions, it's not as though there's hundreds and thousands of transactions no, going through. No, that's right. Um, no, not always. I think they'll generally... Yeah, sell their aggregation and then look to the next the next thing or yeah, yeah, yeah. because but it's probably too hard to gear up otherwise to yeah. you know go again. Yeah, it's in interesting. Yeah. So we've covered a fair bit of ground. Is there something that I should have asked that I haven't? I thought your questions were quite good. Quite. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I um, yeah, I, you know the pro property market. Is fascinating um, when when you try and dig into the drivers of of, of it, and um, yeah, I I love it. I I have a real passion for getting behind the detail and understanding the motivation yeah. of it. And you know, in the day, I, I'm lucky. I get to you know spend a day in the car and half of that with some really you know good genuine country folks. So um, probably country folks a bit uh, country people. Um, so, yeah, I, I just find the property market fascinating. 
it's really interesting that you know we're talking about ag, but you know it's still essentially the same drivers, isn't it? The the natural you know locational advantage that a piece of dirt has yep. is the number one thing. Yep. Um, and then on top of that, you've got you know infrastructure, technology, population, you know government and credit that feed into it. But you know it's all driven by that um, you know natural locational advantage. That's the, that is the number one thing, isn't it? Yep. Location, location, location. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you go. It's it's the same thing. Yeah. So, Jace, if listeners want to um, get in touch and, um, you know, if they've got, I don't know, some ag valuation needs or maybe they just want to have a, uh, you know, a yak over the back fence, so to speak, yeah. um, you know, how's the best way for them to do so? Any time. Be happy uh, happy to, to uh, have a chat, reach out. Um, yeah, you can find us on the website, nightfrank.com.au. Um, and, uh, yeah, our details are all on there. Um, so, yeah. Well, I'll put your specifics, of course, in the show notes. It's been an absolute pleasure, and it's been really interesting talking to you, Jase. I do appreciate you uh, you coming on and, and joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure to have a chat. Of course, we'd love to help you in your property journey, so don't forget to uh, reach out to us on social media at PAFOPOD. So PAFO, of course, is the acronym for property, Australia's favourite obsession. So you can reach us at pafo.com.au or email me directly at jeremy at pafo.com.au. Of course, I'd love to have a chat like I've had with Jace today, so uh, love to you to get in touch. Um, if you've enjoyed today's episode with Jason Oster from Night Frank Valuations, then don't forget to like, subscribe, and tell all your friends about us. I've been your host, Jeremy Cowan, and until next time, Jace, let's keep obsessing about property. Thank you. Any opinions or recommendations expressed should be considered general in nature, as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. You should therefore consider these matters yourself before deciding whether the advice is appropriate to you and if you should act upon it. Should advice be sought, please seek an appropriately qualified advisor. Investing may not be appropriate for everyone, as there is inherent risk and the possibility of loss when investing in financial assets, just as there is the possibility of profits. While useful for identifying patterns, history and past performance do not guarantee future performance. Calvin Flack has a commercial relationship with guests appearing on this production. 